John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Two questions and one implication. Who do you believe Jesus is? And where do you believe He is today? The answer to these two questions have implications for all of your life. Who do you believe Jesus is? And where do you believe He is today? In John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does that mean? The eternally begotten Son of God who has no creation point. He is eternally, in essence, God. That the eternal Son would come fulfilling all the Scriptures, all of God's plans from eternity past. And He would come and take on flesh the fullness of a man. Truly God, truly man, continuing in His essence God. That cannot be. And Jesus walked this earth. He was exhausted. He needed to eat for nutrients. All of what it is to be a human being, Jesus is. He weeps. He bleeds. All of these things. And Jesus fulfilled all of the demands of Scripture. All righteousness. And He laid His life down willingly on the cross. Paying our debt of sin, absorbing the wrath of God upon His body, who was pleased to trust Him for us. But all who believe in Jesus will have life eternal. That Jesus was killed on the cross. He laid His life down. He was physically buried. And in a few days, rose again from the grave. Appeared to many, teaching many things ministering, and 40 days later ascended to heaven where Jesus is today, eternally the God-man, truly God, truly man. And He will come again one day for His bride, and He will make all things right, and all the living and the dead will give an account before Him, Jesus, the judge. He will judge the living and the dead. Who do you believe Jesus is, and where do you believe he is today. This impacts all of our lives. Today will be part one of looking at this text in John 19. In John 19, we're going to ask, if you will, in an interview type format. Not interviewing a person, but as though we could interview the cross. If the cross could speak, today we're going to ask the cross this question Can you tell us about Jesus' body? Tell us about His body. What does it mean that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us? Tell us about His body. And next week, we're going to look at the same text asking the question, what did you hear Jesus say when you held Him close? When He was nailed to you, what did you hear Him say? My prayer for us as believers is that we would grow in a greater affection and appreciation and joy and peace and love of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He laid His life down and took it up again. 
And my other prayer is that if you don't know Christ, that today would be the day of salvation for you. That today you would place your faith and trust in Christ alone for forgiveness of sin. You would come to know the wonderful care of our Good Shepherd, the only Good Shepherd who will lay down His life for us. That's good news. So as we ask the cross this question, tell me about Jesus' body. The cross responds in eight details. Let's look first. Tell me about His body, cross. Tell us about His body. Tell me about what it means that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and that you held Him close. We see first in verses 16 through 18 in John 19 that He physically carried His own cross. The cross would have physically seen Jesus coming closer to Him. This was common. In the Roman practice, four soldiers would be assigned to a guard. They didn't have police like we have police, like we might think of this. They had a legion that was assigned to a region. And a number of them would be given execution duty. Four soldiers to each criminal. So there seems to be three criminals executed that day. Jesus and the men on each side. So there would be, by my math, four, eight, twelve. Right? Where are my toes? Twelve. Under the guidance of one legionnaire, one soldier, that would oversee them. I want to say right away, what's the consequence if they didn't do their job to perfection? Their job to perfection would mean the exhaustion and execution of the criminal they were killing. Historically, we know that the consequences, if they did not kill the man they were assigned to crucify, they would be executed. They, didn't, they weren't hit with some, a loss of a vacation day or pay cut. They would taste death by crucifixion. You think there's something on the line for these men? Do their job with excellence? This wasn't their first tour. This is what they did. This was their job. They were professional executors. Jesus is carrying the cross member until the point of physical exhaustion. His body didn't merely appear to be human as is a, a heresy from history. Jesus is fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man. And he carries the cross number as far as he can until exhaustion and needing help to carry it further. He's been beaten. This is a, a real scene in a real place. We had a number of church members on their own. They went to a trip recently. We got a picture up here uh, from the right. They gave us this is a piece of marble in this area in, in Judea, in Jerusalem. That is believed to be had been at the was at the top of Golgotha, the place of the soul where Jesus was crucified. That perhaps his body was laid on that. We don't know, but it was from that spot. There's another picture of the uh, the uh, the place of the soul. This is not from the trip, but you can see it makes sense. The place of the soul. It looks like a soul there that's been weathered down through the centuries. But Jesus physically carried the wood that he would be hung to. A portion of it. Isaac would walk up the mountain carrying the wood that would be for the sacrifice that was to be him before God provided another sufficient sacrifice. So Jesus walks up the hill physically carrying the wood, but there will be no other sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Who do you believe Jesus is? 
We know in asking the cross that the cross would respond that he physically carried his own cross. Secondly, as we go to 19 through 22, his head was beneath a sign. His head was beneath a sign. The sign was given in three languages. Three languages. And it was placed there by Pilate. And as Jonathan, one of our elders, preached so wonderfully last week, Pilate was in a position of being cornered. He provided every out possible to where he didn't have to crucify Jesus. He has Jesus beaten severely, flogged severely, but that beating would not satisfy the crowd or the Jewish ruling authorities. And then he honors the custom and releases an innocent person, surely a multitude that welcomed him beforehand with palm branches, a salvation, Hosanna in the highest. Surely they would want Jesus to go free. Give us Barabbas. They cried. His hands were tied. He washed his hands. And he places a sign above Jesus' head. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The Jewish ruling leaders look at this and they're offended deeply. And they say, listen, they plead with them. They think they're being reasonable. They know they have no more leverage. They've gotten what they wanted. Jesus' death by crucifixion. Not only is he discredited before the Jews, is cursed as the one who hangs on a tree, but he's discredited before the Romans. They don't have much leverage, but they plead and they say, make it say he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate says, it is what it is. It is what it is. I'm not changing my mind. You're not putting me in a position. You have no leverage to make me change what this says. And so how fitting before the head of truly the king of the Jews and the king of the universe would be languages representing the known world at the time in this area. We have an Aramaic. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Aramaic was the national language of the Palestinian Jews there in Judea. In Latin, the official language of the Roman Empire and army, and in Greek, the language of the Roman providence to everyone who didn't know Aramaic. Everyone that would have been around would have known the claim of who this man. And we'll look at this in more detail next week when we ask the cross, what did Jesus say? But think about it. What Pilate did perhaps to poke the Jewish leaders to say that this was the king of the Jews. It's true. Even if he meant it ironically, it was true. And everyone could read it from the soldiers that would gamble for his clothes, casting lots, to the thief that would be crucified beside Jesus. We'll talk about it more next week, but in a way, this is the very first gospel tract ever made. criminals that hung beside Jesus certainly would have been able to read what the sign said. They mocked him. And the other moved to faith. And asked the first question if he was here today, and we said, who do you believe Jesus is? He would respond, I believe he's the Son of God, the Messiah, 
to Christ. And I want to be with Him. And Jesus will respond to that man, today you will be with me in paradise. Perhaps it was the sign that Pilate has hanging above his head that God in His sovereignty would use to bring that man to eternal life. The day of His death would become the day of His life. For you and me, if you don't know Christ, the wrath of God rests upon you this day. But if you come to faith in Christ, today is the day of your eternal life. That you would know the Father who sent the Son and the Son in whom He has sent, Jesus told us. He had a sign hung above His head physically. What did He wear on His body? His clothes were worn by others, we see in 23 and 24. Third, Jesus' clothes were worn by others. The God-man, just like us, He needed to wear clothing to protect Him from the elements. In Psalm 23, written over a thousand years before the Son took on flesh. We'll talk about this more next week. Psalm 22, think about it. How do you explain this? How do you explain the fact that we have copies, literal physical copies from the Dead Sea Scroll discoveries? We have literal scrolls of Isaiah and other Old Testament fragments of these prophecies before many of these prophecies, before Jesus ever walked the earth. And in Psalm 22, a text written 1,000 years before Jesus walked the earth. Tell me if this sounds familiar. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The text written before crucifixion ever was created as a means of execution. How do you explain this? If Jesus isn't who He truly claimed to be, who do you say Jesus is? And where do you say He is today? Fully God, fully man. Now, imagine the scene with me, if you will. Part of the guard's responsibility in the benefit package of being a Roman soldier is that when you conquered an enemy force, the booty of war, the treasure that would be accumulated, would be distributed by the ruling general to the faithful soldiers. So all the gold that they would capture, all the valuable goods, would be distributed to the faithful soldiers who fought in combat. That was one of your benefits of being a soldier. Now, this group of soldiers that's assigned to this execution task, they can't go and take more land. They can't go and conquer more people as Rome expanded. They instead, part of their reward was whatever the criminal was wearing. And so they distribute goods. They cut his outer garments down and separate it. But when it comes to the tunic, it's too valuable to risk because it will lose its value. So this is the case, but also they don't want to share it among themselves, the four of them. So they're not going like, you get the first two days of the week, you get the next two days. They're not going to share it that way. But not only that, but I would ask you in your home, what's your most prized possession? 
If I was to come to your house and you were trying to impress me with something that you had, what would it be? If, you came, if I came to your family's house, what would that be? Is it something that's been passed down for a long time? Is it, is it a, a something an athlete once had or a star once signed? It could be a normal object, but it's made more valuable because of whose it was. The guards can read. They can look at the sign above his head and see king of the Jews. They're in Judea. You think that tunic is worth a little more money than just a tunic? Of course. And it's so valuable, they're saying one of us is going to strike it rich possibly today. We can't rip this. One of the four of us is going to hit the jackpot. And so what do they do for him? Do they say the longest serving soldier gets it? No. This is fascinating. They draw lots for it. They, if you will, cast dice for it. It's as though they ask God, God, will you solve this dilemma for us? Will you help determine which one of the four of us will get this valuable tunic that your son is, was wearing before and as we're crucifying him? Think of the thing. But this is what sin has done to every one of us in this room and outside this room. Sin distorts how we value true value. Sin corrupts us in all of these ways so that we don't love the Creator, but rather we love and worship creation. We flip everything on its head. And we become idolaters at heart. It corrupts all of these things. And so before we come to Christ as unbelievers, it's as though we say, God, give us things that we want and need because they're valuable, but you can get lost. Or I don't even believe you exist. But if we don't meet our basic needs, we find ourselves embittered at someone or something. The Romans are casting lots to see who will get the valuable tunic as they crucify the one in whom their very material being is being held together in the moment of their crucifying them. Oh. So, the question becomes, as those who've been brought from life to death, who've been moved to faith in Jesus Christ as believers, how do we keep the main things the main things? How do we continue to value the things that God values, the people God values? How do we love God and love others well? How do we value the right things in the right order? One of the gifts that God gives us is He gives us one another. He gives us the Holy Spirit, He who indwells us, and He gives us one another to walk out our faith in Christ. Because here's what happens. The college student up here looks to Christ and says, Hey, that's my Savior. He's the one that paid my debt. I'm forgiven in Him. I'm washed clean in Him. I'm adopted. I'm an heir in Christ in Him. And the senior adult that sits towards the back says, Hey, that's also my Savior. And that's my Lord. And I'm an heir in Christ. Because what he's done is he paid for my sin on the cross. And all in between. And we commit ourselves together as a local congregation under the lordship and shepherding of Christ to abide in his word 
And this is why when we speak of word, worship, service, family, a devotion to the word practiced in the context of small groups is so important for our souls. Because we become a physical speaking mirror to each other. The Spirit, He convicts us, but He also uses His bride, other believers that are close enough to speak into our lives and convict us and love to walk out our faith with us. Do you have a group like that in your life? That's so devoted to the Word that they'll they love you enough to tell you hard things by the Word when your values are perhaps drifting into idolatry. That's a gift that God gives us. So we'll hear more about small groups during our next step announcement time. I encourage you, if you don't have a small group, sign up, get involved. And if you're one of those at home that's still participating, it'll be an online small group as well. To get involved, dive in. Build relationships. The cross would have observed the mockery of the soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothes. And though next week we'll go into detail what exactly Jesus said while the cross held him, we're going to observe right now in verse 25 through 28 the simple fact that Jesus, his voice was heard by all. He had literal vocal cords that could speak and articulate. We'll talk about his tongue that was in his mouth in just a moment. But Jesus' voice could be heard. He was walking upon the earth today, and he could come as a guest speaker, and we would all hear him. Today, fully God, fully man, the right hand reigning the hand other side of the Father and interceding for us, his bride. Jesus, as he cries out, is heard by the four women. Mary, as you can tell, is a very popular first century name. That's a Mary. That's true. There's an unbelievable amount of evidences in the Scriptures, by the way, that this is true. Detailed, detailed evidences. But what we see is that when believers see evidences like these, so for example, one of those evidences, Dr. Peter Williams wrote a book recently, published, that, that looks at the evidences of names. So for example, one generation ago, there was a lot of common names in Nacogdoches. There was, there was a certain name in the 70s. That, that first name is probably not very common today. And two generations ago, the names were even more different. What are the chances that you could guess the most common names correct? Pretty low, aren't they? Everywhere in the Gospel accounts, in the Book of Acts, the study our women's ministry will be going through here in the month of October, all the names in all the places match up. The most common names that we see in the Scripture are a perfect representation of the common names of those actual places. The Scriptures are accurate. They're precise in who was ruling at what time, the precise in geography claims, the precise even in the details of the common names of the time. None of us could guess right. Imagine thinking a country away from here or how different the culture would be in, in, in the Middle East, 100 miles away. The Scripture is accurate in all these things. And here's the case. Evidences as believers, we hear them and we're moved and we think, thank you, God. But if you don't get no Christ, no evidence in the world will change your hard heart of your love of sin and self-rule apart from the work of the Spirit in bringing you new life. So we say, come to Jesus and have life. Yes, there's evidences. Look at the evidences. But understand, unless God, the Spirit, Blows. You are dead in your sins. 
But oh, the Spirit blows into places that to our eyes seem the most dead and the most hardened and the most lost. And God changes lives and hearts every day in our congregation as a testimony of this. God is good. He's faithful in all His ways. Jesus' voice are heard by all, from the women to the soldiers. They heard His dry, labored voice. Do you hear His voice? Every person can answer that in two ways. I would ask you this. Would you just make this a discussion question? It's not a next step question, but would you do me a favor and talk about this when you leave today? When did you first hear the gospel? When did you first hear the word of God? The scriptures. Auditorily. And then second question, when did you first hear the word of God? When did you first hear and receive the gospel of Christ? For some in our congregation, people heard the Word of God at a very young age, and they also heard the Word of God at a very young age. And others, they heard the Word of God much later in life and heard the Word of God at the same time that they heard the Word of God in life. How good is our God? May we, as the bride of Christ, never tire of articulating the Word of God to all people without prejudice and with love and with joy of the hope that we have in Christ. That's the good news we have today. We talked about His voice and heard by all, but also His tongue. It tasted sour wine, verse 29 and 30. A jar full of sour wine stood there. D.A. Carson points out that this was a cheap wine, a wine that would be common to soldiers at the time. Jesus doesn't ask to get drunk. Jesus asks to have His senses heightened. A cheap sour wine, it would have functioned in the same way that Perhaps biting into a lime or smelling salts would be today. By the way, that is one of the greatest perks of being a dad with little boys. Give them a lime and watch what happens. It is wonderful. I don't know, that's one of the greatest parts of fatherhood, I think, that I've been able to experience so far. Awaking the senses. John goes into detail to make sure we understand that he didn't have what appeared to be a physical body, but it really wasn't. Jesus is fully God, fully man. In Jesus, in doing all that the Father has set for Him to do, He makes sure His senses are fully engaged to finish off this work. John gives us details that a hyssop branch is used and touched to His tongue with the sponge of soured wine. I'd like you to flip to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, if you're using our Pubeck Bible, that's page 54. A hyssop branch. Now, this could be, in full confession, a coincidence, though I don't think it's an accident that John, of all, chooses to include the fact that a hyssop branch was used by a soldier. I didn't get you an image, but a hyssop branch is not very long. It's a short plant. And so, as you visualize this, that would mean that Jesus is not on the cross 15 feet high, but that the soldier could reach out and just maybe two feet or less from his arm would be the mouth of Christ as his hands are pierced and legs, feet are pierced. The Hyssop branch has many significant components in the Hebrew Scriptures. One of them, in, as you flip to Exodus 12, we see in Leviticus 14 in God's instructing the Hyssop and the method of the priest cleansing the lepers. 
So when I was younger, I always thought the preacher was calling them leopards. Leopards. Never looked it up. Because I usually just sit there and not look up the scriptures. This is why you should always look and read it, because you might be like me, who thought part of the priest's job was to cleanse leopards. Okay? And as a kid, I thought, if God wants to cleanse leopards, they're his animals, he can cleanse leopards. But they were lepers, people with leprosy. You didn't need to know that at all. And now I feel embarrassed. Okay, let's keep going. But we see that the hyssop plant had a responsibility by the priest in the purifying rituals that God had given his chosen nation, Israel. Second, in Psalm 51, this psalm of confession by David, as he's confronted and comes to realization of his hardness of heart and his adultery of Bathsheba and particularly the murder of Uriah. He cries out in Psalm 51:7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be made whiter than snow. What I want to read is Exodus chapter 12 in the role of the Passover that hyssop plays in the Exodus account. Exodus chapter 12, verse 21 through 27. Now certainly the Roman soldier will grab the hyssop plant that he would have had around and would have used it. Or perhaps it was just growing there on the dolphin and grabbed it. We don't know. But John gives us this detail, and I think it's intentional. Listen to the role of the hyssop during the Exodus. Listen to the role of the beneficiaries of the hyssop. Verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. The whole the lamb of God is takes away the sin of the world. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you came to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and they worshipped. The soldier grabbed what he desired to grab. But as Jonathan said so well last week, what looks like mockery is in reality. The Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Isaiah would tell us in Isaiah 53, Surely He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we have seen Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our sins. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are what, church? We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oh God, you are good. 
our God gave His life. God the Son. And every gospel writer wants to make sure we know that He has He had a Spirit. Verse 30, verse 30. 30 he has and had a Spirit. And He bowed His head and gave up His Spirit. Every gospel writer makes sure that we grasp this. The Pharisees did not outsmart Him. Judas did not trick Him. Pilate did not outpower him, and the guards were not sufficient in their own strength, so they were trained professionals to do to him what they did without his permission. In John chapter 10, look back to John chapter 10, a few chapters earlier, Jesus told us what would happen in this scene. So, so please look there, John chapter 10. You won't regret it. John chapter 10. Jesus is speaking. He gives a clear understanding of what He has come to do sent from the Father. He knows He will lay His life down, but note what He will do. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Look what Jesus said. For this reason, the Father loves me. And beloved, we are so loved. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay on my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Who can say what Jesus said? We can say that we will lay our life down for each other. History is filled with godly men and women who lay their life down for one another. This past week in 9-11, we remembered many who willingly ran into the flames, counting the cost to lay down their life for another. Praise God and thank God for first responders, for police and firemen, and women who willingly do so. Prophets from history could lay their life down. Celebrities and stars might be able to lay their life down. But only Jesus can take it up again. Only Jesus. Whose authority are you living your life by? When you get that bad news and you get sick, or you lose a loved one, whose authority gives you hope? Is the one who laid their life down? Or is the one who, in love of the Father, laid his life down? took it up again. The believer has hope not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. Do you know Jesus? Or are you trusting in somebody that's still in the grave? He has a spirit and also his legs could be broken and his heart could be pierced. John gives us more details about the inner parts of Jesus, his spirit and his heart. Verse 31 to 37, his legs could be broken and his heart could be pierced. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't vanish. He wasn't a hologram. The inside part wasn't God and the outside part was man. Fully God, fully man. Jesus eternally God. His body did not vanish. The soldiers looking at Jesus, these trained executioners, part of their job in this that was termed crucifragrium. 
And what he would do in his crucifragrium is the soldiers would take a sledgehammer or a mallet and shatter the skins or knees of the one being executed. Why would they do that? It's because the death on the cross was from primarily suffocation. Because every breath that they would take on the cross, they would have to push off with their legs on the nail to be able to gain breath. Every breath. The guards look at Jesus who has given up his spirit and they don't break his legs. Why? It's not because they're being compassionate. It's because he has died. Two men on each side are still squirming, gasping for breath. And they take the mallet and shatter their legs. And they come to Jesus with the high priest still supervising the whole scene. And they take a spear and they ram it through his side and it goes through his heart. And I asked our own Dr. Gene Cagle this. This water that would come out was a part of the pericardial sac, which excess fluid between the heart and the sac surrounding the heart. And under great stress, it builds up with water. And so when the soldier pierced his heart, it pierced that sac with all its water and blood and water came out. The soldier is not doing an act of compassion. He's doing an act of job and life security. The soldier used his own family. And the Jewish leadership sees the blood and water come out of Jesus. And he's dead. He will not be resuscitated. He didn't claim his own death. Jesus is dead as dead can be. No CPR will bring him back. No medication given by Dr. Luke can keep him alive. He's dead. So the question to every one of us again, where is Jesus? Are his bones somewhere in an ossuary, in a bone box? Are they in the grave somewhere, in the ground, decomposed? Or is Jesus bodily rose from the dead? at the right hand of the Father. Where is Jesus? When you watch the History Channel around Easter time, you'll see what many claim Jesus is. There's fanciful stories that have been regurgitating these incredible theories. If you don't believe that Jesus is who He claimed to be, you have to explain what happened to His body. The most popular, or among the most popular theories, is called the Sloon Theory, or the Sloon Hypothesis. It's been around for about 300 years. And it posits that Jesus was given some kind of medicine. Somehow he survived the crucifixion. And he resuscitated later on to go and live a life. One author in 1994, Dr. Barbara Steering, wrote a book entitled Jesus the Man. Incredibly brilliant one. But what he did, stuck with the presupposition that he can't be who he claimed to be, she argued that he survived, Joseph of Arimathea, who takes his body, brings him, resuscitates him, and then Jesus goes and gets married to Mary Magdalene, lives a life, he divorces her, and marries another lady, and then he dies in AD 64. The amount of faith it takes to not believe in the resurrection of Christ is incredible. And yet it will become a bestseller. Where is Jesus? Who do you believe Jesus is? 
His body, if we ask the cross, what happened to his body? They would be able to, the cross would say, his body was carried, wrapped, and laid to rest, verse 38 through 42. If John were making this all up, why in the world would he present the disciples as fear-bound? Why would he make the primary eyewitnesses people in that culture who were the least respected women? Why would he make Joseph and Arimathaeus come and Nicodemus in John 3 come and be terrified? Nicodemus in John 3 comes to Jesus by night with questions. And now Nicodemus comes to Jesus' body with 75 pounds of good-smelling stuff because he knows his body is about to be rotting and decomposing. Who do you believe Jesus is? This is the primary call that's worth your entire life. Your answer to these questions will determine all of your life and decisions, how you view other people and treat other people and love other people. Your very purpose in life. Is He risen from the dead? Does He love me? Can I know Him? Can he, did He pay the debt of my sin and my guilt and my shame? Has He given me life eternal and life today to proclaim His kingdom and life that we have? Or is He in the dirt somewhere? hope and courage we have is that Christ is who He claimed to be, the eternal Son of God sent from the Father. And He will come again. And so we bind ourselves together, we place our faith in Christ, and we commit one another to walk out this faith with fear and trembling and the joy of the Lord that is ours and the hope that is ours that is greater than things of this earth. Yes, God is making all things new. He's making us new and He's working and ministering to us. But our joy and hope is hidden in this risen Christ. That's good news. That's what the cross is for. We've never seen anything like this. Do you know that? This leads us into our next step. The first next step question is, in obedience, we see that believers declare our allegiance to Jesus through baptism. Part of what is depicted in this act is a statement of faith. Baptism does not save us. But we enter the water in obedience to Christ. Our King, the one we have allegiance to, and depicting in some ways our dead and missing sin. But our belief that Jesus lived the life we could not or our desire to live, and He died on the cross for us. And so you go under water after your profession of faith, and you don't stay under the water because Jesus didn't stay there. He rose again from the grave, and you're saying, I am united by faith in God. I've been adopted, and now I'm going to live out the rest of my days in newness of life. And one day, though my body and your body will die and be put into the ground, one day we will receive resurrected, glorified bodies. We will be with Him forever. And the life we now live as confessing believers, we walk by faith under the shepherding lordship of our King, Jesus Christ. And so, let's walk in Him together. That's why baptism is a communal testimony. It's a gift that God gives us. So, if you have questions about baptism, if you've not yet been baptized, we'll have a baptism class next week. I encourage you to sign up. You can also mark that on a Connect card. and You can meet with a pastor or a staff member or elder at any time. We'd love to meet with you and pray with you and show you the beauty of what this ordinance that God gives us for baptism is. But secondly, I asked how we began. Two questions with an implication question. Who is Jesus? Where is He today? And how will these questions 
fruit I give. What a time of application. We begin with a song of response. A time in which we sing to our great King. We sing to Jesus, the one in whom the Father has pleased the place of wrath. We know Christ. We don't know Him, but today be your day of salvation. Let us know. We're going to walk out this journey together. He is faithful and good in all of His ways. He's worth your life. He's worth your life. Next week, as we prepare to hear the second part in the words of Jesus, that He would move us to a greater love and knowledge of Him, that we would know Him, eternal life, by knowing Jesus, the eternal begotten Son of the Father. Can you stand with me as we sing together this song of worship and praise this morning?